0: You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Wiley Connected podcast. My name is Anna Gomez, and I am a partner in Wiley's Telecom Media and Technology Practice Group, and I'm also a co-chair of Wiley's Unmanned Aircraft Systems Group. Our UAS Practice Group includes a team of lawyers, engineers, and public policy professionals whose practice spans federal and state regulatory, litigation, and appellate matters. I am here with my co-chair, Josh Turner.
2: Thanks, Anna. My name is Josh Turner. I am also a partner in our TMT group, same as Anna. And as she mentioned, I co-chair our Unmanned Systems Practice. I have been doing that now for six or seven years. I got into this uh, fairly early on in the world of of unmanned uh, systems. And so we've really been watching this industry develop and watching it evolve and and doing the best that we can to support that from a policy
1: standpoint. Today, we are joined by Phil Burks, the CEO of the Genesis Group and First Technologies. Uh, Phil is the founder of First Eyes, which is an American company that has developed a commercial drone system that allows drones to be dispatched autonomously such as by a 911 operator or by commercial security personnel, just to give a couple of examples. Phil and I met when he spoke um, on a panel on UAS that I moderated a couple years ago at the IWCE Expo Conference in Las Vegas. And he has since become a client. Thank you, Phil. And I have been most impressed watching his company progress under his leadership. Phil, welcome to the podcast.
3: And it's my joy. Thank you for asking me to join you today.
1: Well, thanks again. Why don't you tell us about your background and how you evolved from being the CEO of a software company to founding a U.S.-based drone company?
3: Absolutely. Great question. So 30 years ago, I founded a company because I'm lazy. I tell people if I have to do something more than once, I want to have a machine or a piece of software to do it for me. And if one does not exist, I'll find a way to make that. That. I was doing billing for certain things and it was very, very long process, very tedious. So I taught myself how to write software. Well, that was uh, 30 years ago. My son was just born. He was sitting on my shoulder while I was doing the early coding. And now, 30 years later, <clears throat> we have about 50 employees in the office in of London, uh, Australia and Latin America. Our software predominantly enhances two way communications for first responders around the globe. We have other industrial clients as well. Well, that gave us an awareness of what first responders need and the whole big thing. And it's an overused phrase, but it's, it's very, very important. And it's situational awareness. They want to know everything that's going on so that they can respond properly. And as we got talking about this, uh, and it was very high on our list. We helped develop a, a piece of software, which is now commercial, called Genesis Pulse. Genesis Pulse uh, bolts on to CAD systems, 911 CAD systems. And we've teamed up with Rapid SOS and Waze. And with those two inputs, plus the CAD information, we have the ability to better dispatch fire, ambulance, and other first responders. And we've learned through um, analytics that we actually know about. Accidents four and a half minutes ahead of 911, 40% of the time nationwide. So the thought process was what can we do with this four and a half minutes? How can we really capitalize on this to get our first responders a vision into what's going on? I teamed up with a guy who I had met, and I learned that drones could actually be programmed with flight paths to do a mission, go to point, from point A to point B, it may be a circuitous route, maybe straight, but they could get there and they could send back live video and I'm going, this is amazing. So over about uh, a six or eight month period, we developed a, a company and a, a, a business plan which became First Technologies, PH With uh, on the first, because I'm Phil and so that's why it's that way. The product is called First Eyes with an F I R S T, I-Z or Eyes. Um, and the idea behind it was that it could be launched from 911 with a click of a button, autonomously or automatically file all the flight plans with the FAA, and then autonomously take off, fly to an incident, give eyes on the situation, both optical and thermal, and we have some carbon nanotube technology that it can sniff for hazardous gases. And do we have methane or propane that's leaking out of a tank? And then send that information back so we best know how to respond. Is it hazmat first? Is it coming from the Northwest or the Southeast? That's the concept and that's kind of how we got it.
2: And I understand that you've actually uh, qualified as a finalist in some awards that AUVSI, uh, the Association for Unmanned Vehicle Systems International, who I should say is also a client of ours, is giving out. And uh, I think that was specifically for the, the drone port part of the invention or the innovation that you were talking about. You were talking about that? Absolutely, Josh. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, we are a finalist in that.
3: Very, very proud of that. It is something unique that we've done. There are, you know, the concept gets talked about drone in a box. And essentially, we're talking about the box. We've named it uh, the drone port, or our trademark on it is first port, like airport. It's uh, a port for drones. The box is uh, right now about five feet by six feet. It has uh, a lid that slides open. It has a launch deck where the bird sits that uh, elevates from the bottom of the uh, port up to the top. It has a built-in contact-based charging system. The whole goal here is that nobody has to touch this thing to to be able to keep a bird alive and, and let it launch. The lid on the port is RF transparent so that the bird can stay hot and linked into all the uh, gps satellites it is heated and air conditioned to keep it at a right temperature for all the uh, batteries that are on the bird it has a lot of intelligence built into it for safety factors Uh, it has a weather station that comes with it and cameras on the outside camera on the inside and it does not have to be used with our bird we've built it in such a way that it can be used with um, a lot of off-the-shelf birds there is Fundamentally, a size limitation, as you might guess, but it's pretty large um, up to the DJI S900 uh, airframe fit inside it. And uh, there's a kit that we will make available for uh, tying onto the charging system, which is unique. It's different than uh, anything that's on the market that's contact based. And uh, we are going to be bringing that to market as its own device, as well as in combination with our whole system.
2: Well, it sounds like heated and air conditioned. It sounds like nicer than some home offices we've had to work in during quarantine. So it sounds like a good innovation.
3: Yeah. Well, if you're very small, you could actually live in it.
1: (laughs) That reminds me, speaking of the quarantine, we're in the midst of this COVID pandemic. How would this system be helpful to respond to the pandemic?
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, let's, let's talk about the people working from home. Now, we all realize and understand, and you guys especially, that the FAA is our friend, but they can be very frustrating at some times for all of us that want to push the envelope. But I get the fact that they want to operate safely. But let's envision something, maybe not tomorrow, but maybe a few months down the road, where we don't have to actually have uh, our picks or picks. Um, they, you know, the pilot-in-command or the remote pilot we could actually let the system run itself. Let's talk about like autonomous vehicles. We're starting to get the idea that vehicles can drive themselves. Okay, they've proved themselves a little bit. Now, right now, we still have, in many cases, passengers in there uh, with them to take over, but we're starting to see more that are passengerless. Well, think of this like the passengerless vehicle as, as we prove ourselves. So, for people working from home, that means less people that have to physically be there. Is that putting people out of work potentially? No, I think it's actually reorganizing people. We need, we're going to need people to maintain it, people to oversee it, people to do those kind of things. And in the pandemic era, this may be controversial, but you know, I believe we will get through this one, and I believe we're going to have others. I don't believe this is the last time. This is not the first pandemic that we've ever had in the world, right? So this is going to happen again. So let us learn from this and plan ahead. Using drones for putting sensors on that can sense hotspots of things, be it uh, disease, I, I mean, I can't even conceive of what the, the payload might be just yet, but we do have the ability with a thermal sensor to remotely sense people's temperatures. Yeah, it's a little bit creepy to me if we get into stuff like that, you know, with drones, as well as yelling at people to disperse, 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 and eh, lines, realize, but All these capabilities are out there. But again, I want to make sure that we all use our powers for good, not evil in what we're doing. And as such, I believe there is a future, but we have to walk carefully.
1: You can also think about non-pandemic uses for these systems. And for, for example, the sensors, for example, maybe a fire station could utilize these systems.
3: Oh, absolutely. That's a great lead in. That's the, uh, the primary use case that we have. Fire stations, as as the listeners may know, are logically placed with an NFPA standards and they're typically two and a half miles apart. And if you put a drone in a port, uh, a 1st eyes ecosystem at fire stations, they are very, very well placed to be able to tie into power and data and then fly. And then they're near a human that can inspect it and or if some reason we can't land back in the port due to weather, due to other conditions, we do have an alternate landing site and then a human can go and pick it up and and do something with it. But uh, getting out ahead of the fire trucks, here's a factoid that we learned and and I I may have my numbers a little bit wrong. We learned that there are roughly 3.2 million false alarm fire rollouts that happen every year. They have to roll, but uh, uh, 3.2 million of them uh, end up in nothing over 30,000 accidents happen every year with involving fire apparatus. My word, we could cut that down, maybe not to zero, but way less than that by rolling ahead to find out, you know that black smoke that just you see over there? That's not actually a fire. That was just a diesel truck starting up. But they got to roll on it to find out. But we could get the drone out there ahead, they would know and we can sniff the air while we're going and when we
1: get there. As you know, we... We are a law firm, so we help our clients get the legal resources they need to succeed, be they help with the Federal Aviation Administration, other agency rules and regulations, corporate counseling, and fingers crossed you don't need it, litigation. Uh, So today we're interested in hearing about regulatory and policy issues that affect companies such as First Eyes' ability to succeed in the market. Now, the FAA's mission is to preserve safety in the national airspace. We've already discussed this, and that, of course, makes it very cautious as it analyzes potential risks to that safety. The FAA has adopted rules under Part 107 that permit commercial operation of small UAS, but only in limited circumstances, such as only permitting flights during the daytime, within visual line of sight of its remote pilot, below 400 feet. Now that's for commercial operations, public safety can get a little more flexibility under the public uh, certificates of waiver or authorization process. But the security agencies have been particularly concerned about the FAA proceeding any further with permitting expanded operations. And so right now we're kind of um, in a waiting period to allow more operations.
3: So, yeah, what we see is that the the FAA um, is looking for data, data, data. I get that. They do want to operate in a safe environment. So what we see, our mission here is to provide as much data as we can, as rapidly as we can, of safe flights and under different conditions. I applaud them for doing the integration pilot program that they did to gain data, data, data. And I love that. You know, we see the Chula Vista IPP as an example as as a great one where they are flying ad hoc missions you know from point a to multiple points and they're doing it with observers and then remote observers and expanding it out a little bit further and further we we realize we're going to be pushing the envelope with this thing but one of our and i'm giving away a little bit of our secret sauce but one of our ways we see to do this is let's start maybe in safe the safe locations that we can start maybe the first eyes for the first responders in more rural locations, where we don't have as much population, where we can fly out, a shorter distances, and accomplish a whole lot for these guys and gals, and then we can, you know, getting a waiver for night. Okay, that's that's not horribly difficult to do. I do want to get us to the point, and and I want to continue that thought, but I, I just interject that I want to get us to the point with our product where we can be certified, where you know it's just a tick box. Oh. It's a first eyes drone. So uh, yeah, you're good to go. Just, you know, uh, where it's just a uh, that's a tick box. But where we what we want to do is start with campus security. Let me explain campus security. Campus doesn't mean just a college campus or a high school campus, which it could, but it's campuses that might be data centers, campuses that might be shipping container yards. It might be you get the concept that i'm going it's it's some bounded area that has been already predefined that may already have a no-fly zone over top of it and again i am not the expert on this but it just logic tells me that the faa might be more akin to allowing flights in these predictable areas you know after all the analysis by the owner or the operator of, of the first eyes concept and thus again, we're building up more and more data. Now, one of our birds, we do have a parachute on board. It's not one of the parachutes that's uh, already been uh, very popularized. Uh, it's, it's one of um, our designers uh, own making and we are going to put it, our plan is to put it all through the ASTM stuff, again, so we can you know, satisfy the FAA and satisfy ourselves, frankly, because we, we don't want to do anything that's going to harm people or harm anything, because it would be bad for our message, because we're out there trying to help people mm-hmm. for sake, and so we want to do the right stuff. I know, hopefully, that answers your question.
2: Right. And I think you know the, the exciting thing for me as a lawyer is that the kind of operations that you're talking about really do require a lot of pre-thought and pre-planning and acceptance And that's a lot of work for lawyers, less work for pilots, but more work for lawyers You're talking about rebalancing. And so that's good news um, for our profession. But I wanted to shift and talk about some of the specific policy challenges that the FAA is dealing with right now. Anna mentioned some of them, but the big news these days is remote ID and the remote ID proposal that the commission released or the agency released earlier this year. We got word today at the DAC meeting that they're expecting to release that by December 2020, which is good news. Um, I think optimistic, but good news. (laughs) <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on the remote IT proposal? How do you see that thing uh, helping, and, and, and do you see any challenges with it?
3: Yeah, absolutely, Josh. Thank you. I'm going to approach this whole thing as I'm a businessman, and, and I'm, I ride in airplanes an awful lot. I don't come up from the, the, the drone world. Um, but here's my, my take. We, as first eyes, are going to be the good guys out there. We know that. Again, we know that we're going to use our powers for good and not evil, So we want to be identified as being the good guys. That drone that you see up there is okay. So thus, if we take the uh, the negative of that, we want to know who are the non-good guys. And if Remote ID gets us to that point, I'm very much in favor of it. Very much in favor of it. Now, I, I absolutely get the, the hobbyist's uh, argument, you know, um, and but i don't know that hobbyists are just going to be flying ad hoc over cities uh flying ad hoc uh over uh power plants uh things like that i think they're going to be relegated so i think the argument argument can be mitigated on that i'm actually in favor of adsb uh squawk and uh and and receive but a modified version of it first absolutely receive we can say hey, there's some uh, transponders speaking in the area, that's a commercial airliner. Uh, what they're doing down at 400 feet, I have no idea, but you know, that's that's part of the discussion. Today. It's your problem. Right, <laughs> right. But uh, you know, I, I, I uh, pro- proposed out through the channels to say, we're fine to listen all the time, but what if we only squawked out if we heard something? In other words, an airliner, We hear an airliner squawk out on its ADSB b channel, and then we just wake up, transmit out, here's who we are, here's where we are, and then we go back down again. Um, So we both can be aware. So we're not polluting the atmosphere, quote-unquote, with the RF pollution that's uh, the fear factor out there, but we only
2: talk when we're talked to, if we put it that way. It's a very interesting proposal. I know that's one of the concerns that the FAA had was that uh, you would have all these drones, and there are a huge number of drones, right? Far more than general aviation or civil aviation aircraft, and that they would essentially uh, clog the airwaves up, and there wasn't enough spectrum to accommodate those those ADSB transmissions. But you know, the kind of approach that you're talking about, a more active approach, certainly seems to make a lot of sense. And on that point about hobbyists, you know, I I do think um, it he grew up sort of thinking of this as the Wild West, right? Uh, grew up thinking of this as something you could just go out and do. No one owns the sky. Um, and, uh, and so it is hard to go back to those folks and say, hey, yeah, okay, that was okay when there were a few of you. But now that this is going to be a commercialized industry, now that we're going to have uh, hundreds of thousands of drones uh, in flight pass over cities, it just doesn't work to have unknowns out there. And, uh, and so I think, you know, your point about it being unrealistic is exactly right. Hey, Josh,
3: and think about this. Remember the barnstormers? Let's go back in history. When the barnstormers started out, they didn't want no stinking rules because they were <laughs> barnstormers, right? Right. Yeah, I absolutely get it. That's where innovation comes from. You know, but things grow up. You know, your kids have certain rules that are, that are limited, but then we get to adults like ah, I have no more rules. Well, Not quite. You just have different rules. So we all have to be conscious of that progression. You know, you're talking about spectrum, uh, guys, and uh, that's another topic. And that, Anna, did I just lead into your next point?
1: <laughs> yes, we <you> did.
3: <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs>
2: uh,
3: yeah, spectrum is is a big issue. Um, and uh, we have chatted about this over time, uh, Anna and I have, especially. And in, in if, if I leave out a point here, Anna, please, you know, fill in the gaps for me. But uh, I... Uh, I absolutely believe that we, in the professional drone industry, those that are using it for, um, the good of humankind, especially need our own spectrum, um, for C2 command and control, um, and payload, uh, somehow to get the video back in, in very short order, like a very low latency. Um, there needs to be our own spectrum. What that is, I don't know, and I I will even go so far as to say, I don't really care. I just want to have something that's ours. In the short term, we do believe that we can live on LTE uh, for certain elements of it. We are on our bird going to record, um, which gets dumped every time it lands, the high resolution, uh, mission for everything. But we need to give enough information back to our first responders that they can get intelligent enough information to know what's going on live. But where I really, really, really see us living with our first Ice product is in FirstNet, in the, the public safety LTE world. I think that is the absolute idea. We are, uh, in my mind, an IoT device for that. We are another piece of intelligence for our first responders and for other safety measures that it makes perfect sense to live in that spectrum and in that spectrum we can ad hoc just like the other devices do on the first net network you know allocate bandwidth on a priority basis for us when we're in a mission then let it go we're not going to be out there 100% of the time chewing up a broad chunks of bandwidth for long periods it's typically you know a mission which is 5 to 10 minutes and then we're out but that 5 to 10 minutes worth of broadband information extremely valuable. So that's my quick sense on that.
2: And you, you raise a couple of very good points there, right? One is that there are different bands that are going to be appropriate for different missions. And the, the first size product that you're talking about sounds like it's going to be a beyond visual line of sight product. I mean, in some sense, it doesn't matter, right? Because it's going to be fully autonomous. So there isn't really a line of sight at all, uh, but it's a fairly short range product. Uh, it, but while it's short range, it's not, not short enough that part 15 would work. There are other drones that are continue to, going to continue to be able to use part 15. And there are longer range drones that may need uh, something even more fancy, right? Something more dedicated like C band or L band or the, the satellite.
3: And some of that satellite technology is maturing very rapidly as not?
1: Yeah, and right now there's three agencies that are looking at these issues. You have the FAA, which is very interested in spectrum for safety purposes and, and uh, making sure you have the right standards the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, which would be the agency responsible for licensing or identifying unlicensed spectrum for unmanned aircraft systems, and the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, which is the agency that administers federal uh, government use of spectrum and also advises the White House on policies for spectrum. And all three of them are currently studying under a requirement by congress uh what is the appropriate spectrum and what barriers exist to accessing spectrum and how could spectrum be utilized for unmanned aircraft systems so everybody's actively looking at it but we're we're all waiting for what what will be the the actions that enable us to move forward
3: yeah and i see what i'm seeing in the industry and from the technology side anna is that you know some of the companies that are out there are teeing up products to show proofs of concept you know here's our little device that can work in this band it's 12 grams it has this power load you know if you want if we can get an sta to try it out um uh, you know here's 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 a couple of sample products and and you know we are we're participating with a couple of companies in that uh, one of which is to use uh, Frankly, good old fashioned uh, uh, was is it ISM two point four gig and five point eight, and uh, use a mesh technology and use our ports as the land parts of the mesh network, and then fly in the bird and the 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 node that is the mobile node, and it links back to any more than one ground station to you know make the net the mesh work. Now the issue I guess is. What are we, by the law, allowed to do by flying 2.4 or 5.8 in the
2: air? Well, and then it highlights uh, an an area. I mean, Anna has sort of ticked off the various different agencies that are involved in this. Uh, It highlights a challenge that drones are facing. As slow as the process can be when you have one regulatory agency that is dealing with a complex issue uh, involving four or five and having them coordinate with one another, especially when they're, is in a strong direction from, uh, you know, sort of a central authority saying, do it this way, uh, can really make the the process a lot longer. And I think we're seeing that with spectrum. I think everyone sort of generally understands what the right result is. But the thing about spectrum, right, the one constant in spectrum is that there's not enough of it. Uh, And so, you know, you've got a lot of different equities, a lot of different people who are fighting for each of these bands. And you know, without some real active work by the drone industry, I think I think we're gonna be behind the eight ball a little bit on the spectrum challenge.
3: And Josh, don't forget that we need to, for us as critical as we are, flying a device in the air without a human, we need a fallback plan. So what's our primary band that we're gonna be in? What's our primary delivery mechanism? What's our secondary and then our tertiary? So just when all else fails, we still can do flights. Our last case that we have built into our software is stop moving turn around and come back on a breadcrumb to where you last had connection reconnect and then figure out what's supposed to happen from there
2: yeah well and it you know i know we're uh, we're running a little low on time here but maybe we can talk a little bit more about one of the other big issues that's sort of uh, percolating out there and that is this concern about sl- supply chain uh, and it's not unique to the drone space right there's been a lot of concern raised about components sourced from foreign countries, about software sourced from foreign countries, exposure to foreign legal regimes. I know you mentioned that First ice is an American company and that you're building your birds in America, but do you have any concerns about that, that sort of conversation that's happening on Capitol Hill and elsewhere? Yeah,
3: somewhat. I have a pragmatic view on the whole thing. And here here's my the bottom line of my opinion. If we are buying things from, and let's call it out, China. Uh, We use the term foreign entities to be politically correct, but let's call it China because that's the biggest point of concern right now. If we're buying dumb things like carbon fiber, like motors, like wire, things like that, there is no issue. There is not even the beginning of an issue. They cannot put anything into it. If we are buying autopilots, software, other intelligent things like that, yeah, the horse has gone out of the barn on that one as far as I'm concerned. It's going to take a long time to get the trust factor of the American people back up. I realize I'm self-serving because we're making our drones and our ports and everything here in the USA, but, uh, and, and we are sourcing components from China, but we are careful to make sure that every piece of software that goes on the inside, in fact, to be clear, even the autopilot that we're using, while it comes from Europe, we are, we go through every line of code on it and we are even tweaking it and customizing some of it for our ecosystem. So we want to be absolutely positive. I come from a background. We're supplying software to alphabet agencies with my Genesis hat on. We've been doing it for years and years. We have to certify and we have to show proof that we have gone through the, 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 uh, Stig it's called, uh, methodologies to go through and make sure that we have cleansed the software of any, uh. Malware or any foreign uh, software that's in it, or any open source such like this. long story short is we've been down this road, and it, it, to the core of your question. I have no problem if it's dumb components, but I do have a problem if it's if it's smart components coming
2: from China in particular.
1: Well, I think we uh, should probably let you get back to your beautiful office <laughs> complete your day bill i want to thank you this has been such an interesting conversation and i look forward to talking to you soon
3: absolutely and thank you so much and you josh for the time thank you for the questions and uh you know i look forward to the day that you're going to see us on cnn and fox and 60 minutes with a product that's saving lives and and uh, saving time and saving
2: yeah i can't wait to see one of your uh, drone ports in action thanks bill i really appreciate the conversation
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to wileyconnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create, and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.